to After Hours with your host, Amanda Hamilton. After Hours is a platform for conversations with some of Canada's most dynamic creative entrepreneurs. Driven by open, honest conversations, we dig into what makes businesses survive and thrive, giving you tactical insights and takeaways to fuel success, create enduring rituals, and well, crush it in life and business. Philippe Lucas, PhD, is a psychedelic and cannabis researcher and president of Savvy Mind, a clinic group providing access to psychedelic-assisted therapy in the treatment of mental health, pain, and problematic substance abuse. Philippe was founder and executive director of the Vancouver Island Compassion Society, one of Canada's first medical cannabis dispensaries, a founding board member of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies Canada, and co-founder of the Victoria Association of Psychedelic Studies. More recently, he worked as VP Global Patient Research and Access at Tilray, where he oversaw a comprehensive international clinical and observational cannabis research program. Philippe has received a number of accolades for his patient research and advocacy, including the Americans for Safe Access Researcher of the Year Award 2021, the Cannabis Council of Canada Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Well, Philippe, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm actually personally really excited about this conversation. But first and foremost, I want people to get familiar with who you are outside of your bio. What is your origin story? So I know you did say to me that you did not start off, you know, as an entrepreneur, although I don't think many of us actually do. I certainly didn't. You pointed out that, you know, you started as a patient as well as a patient advocate. So I'd love to know a little bit more about how you got your start that brought you to where you are today? Like a lot of people in the 70s, I was born in 1969. I was raised by divorced parents. Mm-hmm. I grew up initially in Montreal and my dad lived in Laurentians about half an hour away and we used to see him on weekends. And then my mother got involved in the federal government and ended up being Joe Clark's press secretary mm. before uh, taking a role in Treasury Board and ultimately becoming Consul General in Philadelphia and in Boston under the Maroney government. At that time, we moved away from Ottawa, where I built kind of my friends and relations that I I still have there for life, to Philadelphia initially, and then ultimately in Boston, where I graduated high school. So I really welcome the opportunity to have seen these different settings. I think I was someone at the time that felt comfortable being dropped in new settings and new circumstances. I also had the benefit of having diplomatic immunity because my mother's role as a diplomat Mm. for those key ages of kind of 16, uh, maybe 20 years old when she uh, left that work. That's why my mother, I think, says that sometimes I think some laws don't apply to me. <laughs> you are an entrepreneur. We're like, oh, those <laughs> rules are there to be broken or for other people. They're not here for us to follow. Yeah, I think that <laughs> served me well in being able to see laws from a common sense point of view or lens rather than being kind of fixed and carved in stone. Ultimately, the the big change in my life happened after I'd finished my undergraduate work. I bounced around between Concordia, Bishop's University and Carleton, moved out west in 1992, moved out to British Mm -hmm. Columbia. In 1995, I had the seminal year and everything I considered in my life is kind of pre-1995 and then post-1995. So in 1995, while I was studying to be a secondary school teacher at the University of Victoria, I went in for a routine checkup when my liver functions came back unusually high. (laughs) And so the clinic doctor at the time at the University of Victoria, and I still live just a few blocks away, said, you have non-hep A, non-hep B hepatitis. 
And I said, what's that? And he said, it's a new form of hepatitis. We don't know much about it. And I said, well, is there a treatment? He said, there's no treatment. And I said, am I dying? And he said, well, it's a long-term degenerative disease. So not right yet, but unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about it. But what you might want to do is quit alcohol and tobacco. Mm-hmm. So non-hep A, non-hep B, hepatitis, we now know is hepatitis C. Right. So it turns out that I was 12 years old. I got into a hospital in Ottawa for a splenectomy through tainted blood through that hospital. Mm. We were able to trace it all the way back there. I would contracted hep C, which was only diagnosed when I was 25 out here in BC. Wow. So after that meeting, I went home, immediately quit alcohol and tobacco. Now, I'm French Canadian. I have to tell you, those were my drugs of choice. <laughs> I'd moved to BC. And of course, I'd, I'd been an occasional cannabis user, but it really wasn't a priority in my life at all. I was much more engaged in kind of uh, the bar scene, alcohol, tobacco. Mm-hmm. But when I quit alcohol and tobacco, I found that cannabis helped me to deal with some of the withdrawal symptoms that I was feeling for alcohol and tobacco. And I found it really useful. Interesting. And you were even feeling that at that age, hey, from being just like a casual drinker, you're like, I am actually going through withdrawal right now. Oh, yeah. I, I should say my both sides of my family has had trouble with alcoholism. Mm. I think even at 25 years old, I knew that I was walking a Fine line. A path towards, yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. that, Amanda. I, I, could, I could tell that that was something I would have to worry about maybe later on in mm. life. So in the back of my head somewhere, I'd always thought, I may have to give this up at some point. This may not be the, the healthiest path for me either. Interesting self-awareness for a 25-year-old, though. I think it comes from looking at the people ahead of you, right? And yeah. my, my father and my mother were both struggling with alcohol use to some extent. And as you get older, alcohol, you know, when your parents drink, when you're younger, it's usually in social settings. It's fun. It's a party. You know, we're, like I said, we're French Canadians, wine with lunch. I mean, it was, yeah. alcohol was always kind of around us. But as you get older and as they get older, you start to see the less fun side where it becomes more like habitual. It's not just for celebrations or Christmas or anything else. So I was realizing that I was kind of uh, a fear of heading down the same steps. And I should say I'd had a few accidents and hospitalizations that were at least alcohol related. So I knew that it was having negative impacts in my life. So this stirred me into action and I started using cannabis. And ultimately I became worried because I thought, well, what's the cannabis doing to my liver and hepatitis C? So I was an academic to some extent at the time. I I started doing some research and the research that I was finding was suggesting that cannabinoids, the key ingredients in in the cannabis plant, have antiviral effects, anti-inflammatory effects. And ultimately, rather than looking at them as maybe another harm that I was doing, so taking away uh, tobacco and alcohol, but just adding something else, you know. Replacing it with something else. Yeah. Yeah, I I realized that it was actually could have some beneficial outcomes in my life. Ultimately, I also found that within a few months of quitting alcohol and just using cannabis exclusively, I was feeling psychologically Mm -hmm. and emotionally and physically better than I had in a number of years. And it was also helping to deal with the the symptoms of the hep C, which include loss of appetite, nausea, etc. But even as a 25-year-old university student, I was having a real difficulty finding a safe, consistent supply. And I thought, wow, if I'm having trouble finding a consistent supply of medical cannabis, this is well before we had a medical cannabis program in Canada, et cetera. Yeah, a lot has changed over the years for sure. And I thought, well, what's a 65-year-old woman with cancer doing Mm -hmm. right now who wants to use it to treat the uh, nausea associated with oncological treatment? So I looked around a little bit as to what was going on in the U.S. and Canada, 
And after seeing Dennis Perone and the work that he did in California with compassion clubs, mostly aimed at the HIV AIDS community, and Hillary Black, who had started Canada's first dispensary in 1997 in, mm-hmm. in uh, Vancouver, the British Columbia Compassion Club Society, I felt that this was something that I could commit my life to. And I just want to share quickly two other oh. life kind of impacts that happened that same year. I hope you'll agree with this, Amanda. I think that with hindsight, And with experience, you can look back at those moments that are incredibly traumatic Mm -hmm. in life and see that some good may have come of them. And so the the next bit of the story I want to share is that that same year I got diagnosed with hep C, in fact, just a few months before I got diagnosed with hep C, my father committed suicide in alcohol-related circumstances. It was devastating for my family. Mm -hmm. He remarried. He had a 10-year-old son at the time who was my brother. And I had another brother from his first marriage who was just a couple of years younger than me. There was a real sense of abandonment. And I was very, very angry at my father for Mm. leaving particularly his second family behind, but all of us behind. So the combination of that and then a few months later being diagnosed with hep C not only made me open to the idea of giving up alcohol, but also really reconsidering what I wanted to do with my life and what chances I was willing to take with my life. Mm -hmm. In combination, those two things led me to consider the idea of like, well, I have a short time here on earth. Yeah, I don't know how long because I've got this disease that that no one has a cure for. And I want to have the greatest impact. And I want to take whatever I, impact I want to have in life and put it in the place where it's going to have the maximum positive impact. And ultimately, I found that I had a little bit of credibility in the community as a as an educator, as a school teacher and someone who'd done childcare, you know, for 15 years, and a little bit of credibility on the topic because I was a patient, a medical cannabis patient. And so I decided to open up the Vancouver Island Compassion Society, which was one of Canada's first medical cannabis dispensaries in 1999, a full two years before we had a federal medical cannabis program mm. in place, and to start uh, distributing medical cannabis to patients in need on a nonprofit basis yeah. out of that organization, and ultimately ended up running the, the Vancouver Island Compassion Society for 10 of its uh, 20 years of existence. I know there's more because we're, we're going to get there. But like, <laughs> this is just such a beautiful start to an origin story. And I want to go back to something that you said that like these these traumas, you know, in our life as sad as they often can be, you gave a, a, an example. And I've, I've been through that myself to, you know, knowing people who have committed suicide. It's like, you know, sometimes these reminders of death, you know, around us are the things that kind of like snap us back into a moment. Or if you yourself had have had a near death experience, or as you said, like if there's been a health change in your life, and, and I'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit more, but also how much of that gets communicated through your body through illness, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I just think it's it's interesting to note and go back to you because I think one of the questions people get asked all the time, like, well, would you change anything that you did in your life? Or would you take away any of the, you know, challenges you went through? But some of the most tenacious, resilient, clever, and interesting people that I have met have a lot of trauma that they've had to work through. You know, it's what it's it's sort of what makes somebody get to the point where they're like, this is what my life's purpose is going to be. And it sounds like a lot for you that, you know, your 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 work has been has been really personal throughout this process. I completely relate to what you're talking about. I would not wish what I'd gone through, my father's suicide, no. the hep C diagnosis on anyone, uh, you know, worst enemies included. I just don't wish those kinds of experiences on anyone. But when I look at where I am now, 
happily married with an amazing daughter doing work I have an incredible passion for. I kind of consider life like a painting. And I think that my goal in life is to paint an interesting picture, at least a picture that's interesting mm-hmm. to me. I look back at the last 20 years since that time, or, you know, 20 plus years, there have been a tremendous amount of challenges, but it has never been dull. I've felt very fulfilled by my work and feel very lucky and grateful for that. And I'm so happy with where I am today. And I know that if I went back and changed any of the, the things, including the horrible traumatic things that happened to me, I wouldn't be in the same spot. Yeah, exactly. So with all of that in mind, I can look back in appreciation, you know, with what I've gone through or, or come out of or been through. Mm-hmm. Picking back up the origin story, I want to know, you know, how all of that then brought you to the creation of Sabi, which I have heard a lot about. Sabi is located in Calgary, and I know a little bit about what you guys are doing, but I do want to dig into it a little bit more. So how did all of that then lead you to creating Sabi? When I started the Vancouver Island Compassion Society, you know, my background was I had an English lit degree, Mm -hmm. I had a post-degree certificate in education. I really had never given thought of going to graduate school or following further academic pursuits. I kind of thought I was done. The initial set of patients that I would see at the Compassion Society were mostly people with HIV, AIDS, or Hep C who'd gotten it through injection drug use. That was Mm -hmm. uh, a real commonality, late 90s, early 2000s. Vancouver had the highest density of HIV AIDS and Hep C in the entire Western world, Vancouver's downtown east side at the time. So people seeking medical cannabis often came from those communities. There were certainly early adopters. And the patients that I was treating would have a script. They would have a doctor's prescription for Hep C or HIV AIDS, but they would consistently tell me, I actually use these cannabis cookies because when I eat a cannabis cookie, not only does it help with the symptoms of my condition, I don't feel like going out looking for heroin. Mm. Or when I smoke cannabis, I don't feel like going out looking for crystal meth or crack. This was really flying in the face of what our government and our schools and everyone else was telling us, which was that cannabis was a gateway drug. You start with cannabis, you end up doing cocaine, you end up inevitably with patterns of addiction, et cetera. Yeah. And what I kept hearing from these patients is that for them anyway, cannabis was an exit drug to problematic substance use. It really made me want to start gathering the voice and of patients and the experience of patients. So initially I partnered with academics at the University of Victoria and the University of California, San Francisco as well. And we did these small scale studies based out of the Compassion Society survey studies, et cetera, to gather data from the patients and gather that patient voice and experience. But ultimately, I ended up going back to UVic and getting a master's. And then a number of years later after that, a PhD, so that I could design my own research. And my my research on cannabis uh, over the last 20 years has really focused on patient patterns of use and translating the voice of patients into data that can impact policies, open up access, et cetera, but with a real focus on the impact of cannabis on the use of alcohol, tobacco, opioids, and other drugs. So cannabis substitution effect. I want to ask you a question and it's, it's controversial. So if you don't want to answer it, it's totally okay. <laughs> but I'm very curious if you have an opinion around the safe injection sites and whether or not you find that this is harmful or helpful in terms of people being able to get off of those very deadly drugs that are, you know, killing many people. I spent a lot of time in Vancouver and it seems to be absolutely out of control. So I'm just curious if you'd be willing to share, you know, your your thoughts on that. For me, it's not ideological at all on these issues. I'm purely evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And the evidence is really clear that harm reduction approaches like supervised consumption site, like creating a safe supply of prescription heroin use, for example, 
inevitably, unquestionably save lives. And I think if I could broaden the position a little bit, I've never in all of my years as an academic studying drug policy, addiction, et cetera, seen a single publication or study that suggested that prohibition worked or made anything better in Mm -hmm. terms of the lives of substance users in Canada or anywhere else in the world. So prohibition inevitably makes already potentially dangerous things like the use of heroin, injection, opioids, et cetera, so much more dangerous. So Mm -hmm. prohibition and prohibition-related harms are often combined with drug-related harms, but so many of the harms that we see people dying of overdoses on our streets, et cetera, are actually prohibition-related harms. If individuals knew the supply they had was safe, knew the doses they were taking were tolerable, we would not be losing so many friends, family members, and members of our community to opioid overdose deaths. So my adult work has been focused on opening up access to cannabis and psychedelics, Mm -hmm destigmatizing the use and the discussions around substance use, but also moving away from policies based on prohibition, fear and prejudice towards policies based on science, reason and compassion. Yeah. And I I look forward to getting more into that because again, you know, the work that you're doing at Savvy, it's not new to you and it certainly has been around for a while, but it's it's definitely becoming much more mainstream. It's definitely becoming much more accepted, but it's still, you know, it's still a controversial sort of unknown area. And so We'll we'll be chatting a little bit more about that, but I'll I'll let you get back to the origin story. I took sure. I took you off of your off of your path there. I was like, I want to ask him about this. Amanda, I'm totally enjoying the discussion. It's not <laughs> a problem at all. So I started doing research on cannabis, as mm-hmm. I said, and kind of data gathering, and that became really exciting to me. That capturing of that and, and representing that patient voice, that community based research approach. And I'm lucky enough to have great mentors like Susan Boyd, who's a, a PhD academic, who's also been a longtime activist in the downtown East mm-hmm. Side. Folks like MJ Malloy at the BC Center for Substance Use, Zach Walsh at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. So. Great folks around me in general, kind of helping push along my work and my research. During the same time, I was introduced to Rick Doblin, the head of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Mm. And Rick has been involved since the early 80s in a fight to get MDMA legalized. And of course, now all psychedelics legalized and to make psychedelic uh, therapy more readily available. And at the time, I was introduced to him by Ethan Nadelman who's head of the Drug Policy Alliance in the U.S., because I was looking to do a clinical trial of cannabis, and I didn't want to use a placebo. I didn't want people in chronic pain to be exposed to placebo. I wanted to find another way around that. It seemed cruel to me to expose them to placebo. And Rick and I spent an evening talking about the pros and cons of placebo research. And we got along very well. A little while later, he asked if I wanted to help out in a study of ibogaine treatment for opioid addiction that was taking place in Vancouver at a center that at the time was being funded by Mark Emery, the kind of the cannabis king of, you know, mm. of, of Vancouver at the time. He had a center called Iboga House that was providing free treatments for people with opioid dependencies uh, using Ibogaine. So I helped maps on that study that ultimately ended up moving to Mexico, uh, the study itself. And then Rick brought me down to Israel in the early 2000s to work with the Israeli medical program, the federal medical program, the Ministry of Health to be able to talk about community-based access, about why this should be a decentralized system and you should have dispensaries like the Vancouver Island Compassion Society to ensure that patients have access. During that time, I had a chance to travel with Rick and his family around Israel, and we formed a really tight bond. And 
continue to be very close. Around the same period, I, you know, after having moved away from alcohol and tobacco, I had to kind of rediscover who I was if I wasn't the guy in a bar shooting pool. And I found the dance community uh, really welcoming. And it was an alcohol-free zone in many ways. So uh, this was the late 90s, early 2000s. I started getting into the more of the rave community here on Vancouver Island and ultimately had some experiences with psilocybin in a kind of recreational setting that didn't involve alcohol, like early experiences I'd had kind of dabbling in university that ended up being quite profound. They led to some profound realizations in my life. And then a few years later, I had my early experiences with ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And during one of those ayahuasca experiences, my third ayahuasca journey, I'd gone in, you know, with the intention of looking at some work related issues or something. And I immediately was brought into a conversation with my father, with my long deceased father. Yeah. Now, now, when my father died, I thought I'd done all the work I needed to do to deal with his passing. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd done solo camping trips. I tried to make sure that I had felt all the feels, gone through all the emotions, right? And here I was a good 10 years later in conversation with my father, weeping uncontrollably during this ceremony to the point where I had to leave the yurt, you know, where this thing was taking place because... I just felt I must be disturbing people. And I spent a good four or five hours basically weeping and having this emotional, if not, you know, psychological or otherwise contact with my father. And what I realized during that night is that I had had a lot of anger over his death, over his suicide. Mm. And I never resolved that. And what I realized that night was that the anger I was feeling was really based on guilt and regret. I felt very guilty that I wasn't aware of the level of depression he was feeling. I right. felt very guilty for the tough love approach the family and I had used in talking about his alcoholism and, and his alcohol use. I felt tremendous regret and guilt that as the oldest son, he didn't feel comfortable calling me when he found himself considering ending his life. And I never felt anger towards him for that behavior again. And I thought, if this experience has allowed me to move past trauma that I didn't even realize was so deeply that you didn't even have, yeah, felt like a lighter human being, a happier human being instantly the next day, or at least, you know, over the days to come, I thought, you know, there has to be ways to make this more available to people. It, it shouldn't be this exclusive tight little circle that has access to this. And it really spurred on my desire to try and open up access to psychedelic treatments as a kind of side work to the work I was doing and very involved with with cannabis. So mm -hmm. I, I became a founding board member of MAPS Canada when Rick decided that there was some benefit to opening up a Canadian version of MAPS and yeah. was the board chair there for a number of years. And, and that's really what started my journey down psychedelic work and research that, that ultimately led to coordinating a study of ayahuasca as a treatment for trauma and addiction that involved Gabor Mate's work with a British Columbia indigenous uh, coastal community out here as well. You know, for those people that might be listening and and they have absolutely no idea about psychedelics, mm. I know we can dig in, but I'd love for you to just very high level talk about um, some of the psychedelics that you have worked with and how they're effective. Because I mean, again, there's such a varying degree of knowledge about this. So, and then maybe get into a little bit more in terms of, of, of how Sabi works with some of those things. I know there's ketamine assisted therapies and things like that. And so I'd love for you to dig in a little bit more about what you guys use and how you utilize them 
Typically, people separate psychedelics. It's an artificial separation between classical psychedelics, which would include psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, and then the kind of non-classical psychedelics like MDMA, ketamine that that uh, affect different receptors, mm -hmm. ultimately. And, uh, and have very different uh, effects. But I think that the, the catch-all for psychedelics is that they create a deep altered state of consciousness that can lead to full ego dissolution. And what I mean by ego dissolution is that the separation between self and the rest of the universe or the rest of civilization, the rest of the human population or the rest of or nature gets broken down. And so basically you peel back all of the social construct in our lives you know, who I am, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a researcher, I'm an executive at a psychedelic company, you get down to the, the bare bones of who you are as a human being. It's that experience, uh, certainly research suggests, that experience of ego dissolution, that kind of reset button that we can set in our minds that leads to a lot of the therapeutic outcomes, or that's, uh, that's theorized to lead to a lot of therapeutic outcomes. For People who have been stuck in a rut of chronic pain or mental health challenges, anxiety, depression, PTSD, mm -hmm. and a number of other conditions, it can break you out of the rut of thinking because ultimately chronic conditions are about conditioning in the brain as well. Right. We have repeated neurons firing and creating the same pathways over and over again. So someone with chronic pain will experience their chronic pain over and over again in a way that has less to do with the sensation of pain and more with the brain pathways around that. Right. It's interesting. You went into kind of my next question because I said, you know, I was thinking, okay, so who who is the ideal patient that is using this? Is this for everyone? I mean, you brought up some examples of people who are dealing with, you know, long-term trauma, chronic pain, PTSD, et cetera. And so I'm curious if this is sort of a, okay, we do a protocol for a certain amount of time and somebody is fixed, right? Right? Because everybody's looking for the quick fix. Or is this work that is often lifelong? I mean, I, I guess it would range from patient to patient. Um, in terms of what sort of protocol you would recommend for them to sort of be able to see what works best for them? There's a lot of different ways to answer that question, Amanda. And I would say that that's because there's such a range of reasons and intentions why people use psychedelics mm -hmm. that range from very last ditch efforts to treat conditions that have been completely treatment resistant yeah. to people who want to use it to improve mental health or to make well people better is another way to look at it. So within that spectrum of wellness mm -hmm. to severe chronic health issues, you've got the range of, of why people use psychedelics. So let me tell you a little bit about that aspect of the severe health impacted use. So psychedelics right now are being studied for treatment resistant depression. When it comes to mental health, treatment resistant depression yeah anxiety, PTSD, and in some cases, very specifically end-of-life anxiety, mm. psycho-spiritual ailments that are very treatment-resistant. If you've had a trauma that's led to PTSD, whether it be sexual trauma, war, or violence-related trauma, it can be very difficult to simply talk your way out of that through talk therapy. PTSD doesn't respond very well to pharmacological treatments, so mm -hmm. antidepressants. Even cannabis, which is used by a lot of PTSD users, tends to help mass symptoms, but it's not curative by any means. Psychedelics have been shown in novel research, but also some studies going back dozens of years to the kind of first wave of psychedelic research in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, to 
allow people to, in some cases, re-experience their trauma in mm. a setting that feels safe, safe where yeah. they can move through it mm -hmm. or to work through their trauma more obliquely through these altered states of consciousness in a way that allows them to have some resolution. And in some cases, that means that with just one or two treatments wrapped in psychotherapy, so not just taking the drugs, but taking uh, psychedelics along with psychotherapy, with one or two treatments in some cases, people with severe long-term treatment-resistant depression can actually no longer qualify as having PTSD mm. or having depression. They no longer score high enough to actually be considered to have PTSD or in some cases depression. These in many ways can be short, sharp intervention. And when you look at the long-term costs of treating treatment-resistant chronic pain, depression, or trauma, those are the biggest healthcare drivers, along with addiction, in our healthcare system for healthcare spending. So mm -hmm. if you can find an intervention that can actually lead to curative outcomes rather than just treating symptoms over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it can be not only life-changing for the patient, but have incredibly great net benefits for healthcare spending overall as well. So ketamine and what we use at SABI, which is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy based mm -hmm. on intramuscular injections, which predictably can lead to altered states of consciousness, these kind of ego dissolution effects, mm -hmm. is considered a, something that we use as a short, sharp intervention, but with some follow-up in some cases in the treatment of treatment-resistant depression and chronic pain conditions. And I, I have to say, we've only been doing treatments since March, but we've treated now a few dozen patients and the outcomes in some cases have been life-changing and yeah. remarkable. So an incredible privilege to be on the healing path with anyone. And that's what kept me doing activism around medical cannabis mm -hmm. and taking, you know, the risks associated with distributing medical cannabis before we had a medical cannabis program in Canada. It's that relationship of the patient, seeing the change in people's everyday lives that can be going with psychedelics. It's exactly the same. It's the opportunity to really, really change someone's life and their day-to-day -day quality of life and existence mm -hmm. in a very positive manner. There's obviously a lot of myths and probably some things to debunk uh, about the world that you are working in. And I think one of the first questions people talk about is, you know, the difference between recreational drug use and therapeutic drug use. And I'm curious what your thoughts are around that, because I think there's a lot of recreational drug use right now. And we have been referencing a lot of the stuff, psychedelics as medicine, right? The idea that this medicine is working through therapy, but there is also the other side of it too, where it's being used uh, recreationally. And I think the challenge is, which, which you can probably speak a little bit more too is you said this perfectly is like when you're in a safe environment the idea that you're going into these circumstances with um, an intention set right there's probably a reason why you're doing the therapy you have an intention of what you might want to get out of that session and that it's actually being um, monitored by somebody you know who who has the experience to lead you through that experience as well as you know a background to some extent probably from med a medical standpoint to make sure people are safe and so I think it'd be valuable to touch on the difference between recreation use and therapeutic use, because I think there is a big difference. I want to start out with a broad and clear statement that despite the fact that most psychedelic substances are not considered to be physically addictive, some people do develop dependence issues and problematic use patterns to psychedelic drugs like MDMA, ecstasy. Mm -hmm. People have had negative experiences from psilocybin use, there's no doubt. 
Ketamine itself can be dependence-forming in a way that's a little bit different than the classical psychedelics. You can develop an addiction to ketamine when used improperly or outside of clinical settings. And so these are substances that I think deserve great reverence, Mm -hmm. which past cultures have given them and using them in spiritual ways and limiting access to them through shamanistic practices or otherwise. Let me start out with that. Mm Almost everything that we know about the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, we know because end users have used them in a non-clinical recreational setting, found benefits, and then shared those out in a plurality that's enough to convince researchers and physicians to investigate these substances further. They were the early adopters, the innovators, right? So that the early majority can be like, yeah, this might be something I could use. Yeah. And so when I started my work on cannabis, it wouldn't wouldn't be unusual to meet a middle-aged woman with MS who'd say, I was at a party and my MS has been getting progressively worse over the years. Someone passed me a joint. I smoked a joint. The neuropathic pain I have in my fingers disappeared. I had no idea. I was just smoking a joint. Suddenly my, you know, inflammation felt better. I was able to move and dance in a way I hadn't in years. So that experience I've also heard with psychedelics where people will say, I've been suffering from trauma or addiction. I had a circumstance or a situation where friends and I were doing psilocybin on a camping trip. And I had this revelation that was life-changing and led to positive outcomes in my life. So there's definitely the possibility for positive outcomes outside of a clinical uh, setting, even within a recreational setting. I also want to go back and make one more thing, because we talked about this earlier. A lot of the harms that can happen in a non-clinical setting are prohibition-related harms once again. So psilocybin is easy to get in Canada. There's got to be about 50 online vendors right now. If you look up psilocybin, you can order psilocybin right now. That's after you figure out how to spell it, right? Yeah, exactly. That that and ayahuasca, the the amount of times I've seen people try to spell ayahuasca, and I'm like, it's not not even close. It took me three years to even pronounce ayahuasca properly. So I hear that. Exactly. So you, you can access these substances, but we have no idea about the quality control, about mold mildews. We have no idea about dosages if you're accessing off the black market. Ecstasy or MDMA is one of the most contaminated drug supplies there is out there. So it luckily doesn't have fentanyl in it typically, but it most often is, you know, I think something like 70% of samples that are tested have something other than MDMA in them with ecstasy. So that is a prohibition related harm and that we don't have safe supplies for psilocybin, MDMA, et cetera, for people right. who might want to use them for spiritual development, recreational use or medical use. So that's, yeah. let me start up there. At Savvy Mind, what we try and do is not only reduce the harms associated with psychedelic use and the use of ketamine, but we try and maximize the benefits. And the flip side of harm reduction is benefit maximization. And if you're doing drug research and drug development research, the Tri-Council policy on human research says that as an academic or as a drug developer, you have to do both. You have to reduce the harms to the end user and you have to maximize the potential therapeutic benefits. So that's a guiding light for us. So at Savvy Mind, we take a very biomedical approach. So we have an in-house psychiatrist, two anesthesiologists, one of whom's a chronic pain specialist, Mm -hmm. four RNs, uh, two clinical psychologists, a master's in social work. And then we also have an incredibly talented uh, experience specialist who uh, has a a master's in, in public policy. So we take a very biomedical approach. We have this clinical team, but we wrap it within the modernist Japanese tea house, this lovely, low impact environment where you can come in, leave your troubles, daily troubles behind, 
make yourself open as possible to the experience you're about to to uh, to go through and be able to go as deep as possible into yourself into your inner journey to try and get the maximum you know maximize the benefits yeah and so we do that also by we have uh, curated soundtracks done by michael red who's a musician and dj in uh, vancouver who specifically designed these soundtracks for ketamine journeys for us which the patients really respond to low light settings mm-hmm. we'll take your tea order and your snack order before you go through your ketamine therapy when you come out of the ketamine therapy it's waiting for you everything to try and make this as i don't want to say pleasant because if you're dealing with trauma it can be very mm-hmm. challenging but as productive and as effective in yeah. terms of outcomes. And, and we take a very academic view of this as well. So before you go in your ketamine therapy sessions, you fill out a number of measures with us on anxiety, depression. So these are validated scales, quality of life, uh, social connectedness, PTSD. And then we follow up at two weeks, a month, and three months after the treatment so that we can look at the outcomes or the impacts of these treatments on those measures, uh, also on prescription use and the use of other drugs, because we actually expect to see reductions on prescription drug use and the use of other drugs, alcohol, tobacco, post-ketamine use, so that what you've got is a biomedical approach, academically supported by the data that we're gathering, but within a very holistic treatment setting. Yeah. And, and you touched on this a little bit as I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about preparation integration, right? So this isn't the like, I book an appointment tomorrow and I go in and do this. To my understanding, there's there's some preparation and some work that goes into pre going for this appointment. And then also the integration part of it. How do you care for yourself following this appointment, especially if something gets brought up, as you said, it did for you that you didn't even know that it existed there, you know, unlocking memories that you you didn't even know were there that can be really disruptive to your day-to-day life. So I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to that preparation and integration. So SADI is a referral-only clinic. And so psychiatrists or physicians refer people to our clinic. And then we do an initial assessment. The nice thing is that that initial assessment, and that's to make sure that people don't have any physical or psychological impediments to going through with ketamine therapy, contraindications, as Mm -hmm. we'd say, or exclusion criteria. The nice thing is that initial assessment is at no cost to the patient. It's covered by the provincial healthcare system. So we assess them for either chronic pain or for a treatment-resistant mental health uh, condition. And if it seems like they qualify for treatment, they then meet their therapist. And so their psychotherapist would meet with them. They'd spend 60 to 90 minutes talking about their background, their, you know, their family life, what led them to basically come to Savvy Mind, and also preparing them for the actual discovery session when they're actually going to be experiencing ketamine and the ketamine infusion. And so talking about their intentions, what do you hope to get out of this? And intention is really good practice, by the way, for all psychedelic journeys, because it gives you something to go back to. You may not be able to control where the journey is taking you in a lot of cases, but if you find that you're in a frightening space or an unknown space and you're feeling discombobulated, you can go back to your intention. Oh, I was hoping to focus my relationship with my mother and it'll help refocus you and steer you back up. Or I wanted to go back to that childhood trauma, et cetera. That takes place before the discovery session. And then on the day of the discovery session, you 
come in and you would have fasted for a few hours. You'd sit in one of our very comfortable chairs or couches, put on eye shades, either listen to music or one of the soundtracks on a speaker or over headphones. A nurse or anesthesiologist would come in and do the injection and a nurse would oversee the entire 90 or so minute process. Wow. We have a very clear consent form, not only for ketamine therapy, but also about any physical contact. But if you've given permission to the nurse to put a hand on your shoulder or on your foot or on your head, they might do that just to let you know that someone's there watching over you. Some people like no contact at all, and that's absolutely fine as well. But just know that you'd be supervised and that your vital signs would be taken mm -hmm. in order to make sure that you're in a safe setting, et cetera. And then as you slowly come out of the ketamine therapy, the nurse might ask you if there are any themes that came up that they could pass on to the therapist the next day for your integration therapy. And so the nurse would jot down any notes, slowly walk you into what we call our savvy room, which is a low light, low intensity room where you can think about your journey and get yourself ready to get back in your real world. We, we definitely don't want to shove you right back in your everyday life until that happens. And then we discharge you only with someone to take you home because we don't want anyone driving within 24 hours of this kind of experience. And then within 24 to 48 hours, you do the integration therapy with the therapist where they might talk about the themes that came up and what they mean to you and how to make use of those in your everyday life. I feel like we could talk about this forever. It's such a deep, deep conversation. There might have to be a, uh, a second to follow up podcast, but... <laughs> What are you finding is the biggest challenge that you're having to overcome right now with this work that you're doing? It's unfortunately the same challenges that we face with medical cannabis as well. Mm. And so it's obstacles to access, which come in three forms. Stigma, you know, with cannabis, there's the stigma around cannabis use with psychedelics as well, because of the long, we've all been exposed to 70 years of prohibitionist messaging, et cetera. And the stigma has to do with a stereotype, who does these substances or what effects they're going to have that are outside of the typical sp scope of their real effects. And then the other two things are, the legal restrictions or regulatory challenges to make sure that patients who could benefit from these treatments can actually have safe access as quickly as possible. And the third one is related to that, which is the cost issue. So yeah. uh, both with medical cannabis and with psychedelic therapy, these are not covered by the provincial healthcare system. Some private payers are starting to cover costs, which is great. And that's, you know, some of the work that I do at Savvy and did uh, previously around medical cannabis is yeah. open up work with insurers to increase the cost coverage for these treatments. But those are really the the challenges right now are the uh, the challenges of access issues. And mm -hmm. they're all wrapped up together. You know, if there's every, anything I've learned in life is that patience, perseverance, persistence really does pay off. And we're way further ahead, obviously, on cannabis issues than we were 15 years ago when I started. You know, yes. <laughs> we went from illegal to essential. I yeah. actually have a, a company called uh, Illegal to Essential, which is an, a research uh, a company that I still operate and et cetera. But mm -hmm. so, I, and I think with psychedelics, it's the exact same thing. We're much further than we were five years ago, and the understanding and acceptance of psychedelics five years ago most of the population might not have heard or been able to pronounce or spell psilocybin. And now yeah. ketamine and psilocybin have, over the last two years have gotten a lot of public attention, most of it positive. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to overcome some of the stigma issues, which typically comes from lack of knowledge. It's an education issue more than anything else. What's your hope for the future? Like, what do you hope to accomplish in your lifetime? Well, I hope that I can look back and see that I've, I've been able to, to impact 
people's lives in a, in a positive manner, either through access to cannabis or psychedelics or through some of the information that I've been able to share, some of the research that I've been able to do. All of my research is geared towards informing positive policy developments and increasing access to patients that can benefit from it. You know, outside of the the, the stuff that's closest to me, which yeah. by the way, you know, if you want to say, you know, what what impact you hope to have, I hope to be a good father and I hope and a good husband. You know, that's that's yeah. my primary goal and to be to show the patience and perseverance that's needed to do all of those things and the and, and the loving caring. And by the way, I mean I'm very lucky to to be in a loving family and loving yeah. relationships. And so that's that's not an issue, but that's really what I hope to do in life more than anything else at the highest level. But when I look at my professional life, if I've been able to make someone's life better today versus yesterday, then I will consider it a pretty good day today. And that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's keeps me going on a day to day basis, that relationship with patients, that improving the lives of, of patients and and reducing the suffering of, of individuals just trying to make it through life. Mm -hmm. You can definitely see the passion for your work. Where can we find you? If people want to dig into a little bit more about what you're doing and what Sabi is doing, where do we find you? I can be reached easily at Sabi through my email, which is Philippe at Sabi Mind, P-H-I-L-I-P-P-E at Sabi Mind, which is S-A-B-I-M-I-N-D.com. Mm -hmm. I'm also easy to find online, on LinkedIn, on Facebook and otherwise. And regularly post not only the results of my own research, but any other interesting research on psychedelics and cannabis and other matters of interest, because I'm very socially involved on yeah. food security issues, housing, et cetera. Oh, thank you. I mean, you you have so much knowledge around this topic. Again, like I said, I feel like we just barely were able to scrape the surface. Yeah, I, I really believe in a kind of positive mindset approach. And it's something that's become, you know, if you talk to my 14 year old daughter, school teachers, they all have positive mindsets. My wife's a therapist. They talk a lot about positive mindsets mm -hmm. right now. Let's look at assets rather than deficits. I just want to share a concept that I've only become familiar with in the last kind of year or so, which is trauma informed growth. And I, I want to share with you, Amanda, because I think you and I have share some commonality in this. Trauma informed growth is different than resilience in that it talks about growth that happened in ourselves that wouldn't have happened without the traumatic experiences mm -hmm. that we could never have expected or benefit from or enjoy without the traumatic experience. So as we talked about those positive outcomes that come from traumatic experience, the idea, the concept of trauma-informed growth to me is incredibly valuable because if I can talk to a patient who's only suffered from their trauma over the last 10 years, and we can talk about the ways that they might have benefited, you know, one way or another, that they they have a view of the world that's unique because of their trauma that's it's actually added some ways to their lives. They can look at all experiences, positive and negatives as contributing to their lives and understanding of life. I think that's really important. So even in the worst case circumstances, hopefully we can all find a little bit of benefit, a little bit of growth in ourselves that ends up being positive in the long term. What a beautiful way to end the conversation. And even for myself, I'm I'm now reflecting back on, you know, the things that have happened in my life that have made me who I am. And just going back to that point, I don't know that I would change anything. This idea of, you know, growing up in a utopia with never having any pain or sadness or anger. I mean, when you think about that, it sounds really off, you know, awfully boring. There's this contrast of experience that that makes things interesting, that makes them worthwhile. It's the it's the same idea I have around about the seasons changing. It's like how do you how do you appreciate 
appreciate a beautiful summer, you know, in Calgary, if you don't, you, you don't go through the winter, you know, so the changing seasons in, in your environment, but the changing seasons in your life do make you um, much more grateful for what you have. And, and just leaving on that, that positive mindset. I love that. Thank you so much. I, uh, I really appreciate your time. And like I said, I would, I would love to continue this conversation. I, I know we're closing things off, but I do want to say that although we talked about cannabis and psychedelics here today, my interest and the therapeutic potential of psychedelics is really about altered states of consciousness. And there are many ways to gain those altered states of consciousness. So I just want to share that one of the kind of pre-questions you'd send is, what's the biggest misconception of your work? And that that's that it involves drugs. Right. And it really doesn't. It really involves altered states of consciousness with psychedelic and, and psychedelics help you lead there and their th therapeutic potential. I think altered states can, uh, have been important to human evolution and can be uh, important therapeutically. And that's where, you know, someone like yourself who hasn't tried cannabis or psychedelics, I think that's where a discussion could start Yeah, uh, to talk about the value of these altered states. You might get through dancing or skiing hard one day or any of those things. Well, I did a Wim Hof facilitation last week. <laughs> and let me tell you, you do enough of that deep breathing you 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 transport yourself to other places and then we followed by a, a cold plunge which I love to do so uh, and same thing I mean it's like you have to put yourself in an altered state to be able to deal with with the cold and the pain and what's happening with your body so fascinating I, and I, I agree with you 100% it's this idea of altered states how you get there and then ultimately like you know what the what the long-term benefits are about you know putting yourself um, in those in those positions so yeah, man, I think we could talk forever, but. <laughs> I like it. I, I think the only other messaging I'd pass on everyone is we should all have a very low tolerance for heroin unhappiness and a very low tolerance for boredom in life. It's too short. So, mm. uh, so, so change things up if you find that you're unhappy and, uh, uh, and definitely uh, keep, keep things interesting and exciting. We all deserve that in our short time on earth. Agree a hundred percent. Again, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. We will make sure to put all your contact information in the show notes and have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks a lot for this opportunity, Amanda. It was really great to chat with you. As always, thank you so much for joining us today on the After Hours podcast. If you want to keep up to date with all of our crazy adventures or subscribe to the podcast, feel free to check us out at amandahamilton.ca.